thank you very much, Mike. And I bring you uh, wishes from tropical Minnesota. Uh, when I left there, it wasn't quite as chilly as it is here this day. But uh, I did come in on the train, which was a very sensible thing to do, because I did get here safely and didn't miss the hassle at uh, O'Hare Airport. I've had a most enjoyable stay here in Chicago last evening. I had dinner with Mike Cohen and his wife. And today I visited the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. And, uh, I went to uh, the London Bookshop, which was a very interesting uh, experience to meet Glenn and to see the fine collection of books that he has. And then this evening I've been sitting here with Marshall, who is a dear friend of all of you. I know that I haven't met him before. And How are you? <laughs> Cabins, 
debates with Douglas, or the campaign for the White House. The question is this. What training and experience did Lincoln have which would aid him in delegating authority and overseeing the structure of the federal bureaucracy in a time of crisis? In other words, how well equipped was Lincoln to be the chief executive of a civil government? For 12 years prior to 1861, Lincoln had not been in Washington. He had left at the end of his one congressional term without leaving any recognizable imprint on the House of Representatives. While he served as the lone Whig from Illinois, Lincoln was never on the inside of events, nor was he required to make any notable decisions. There is no record of Lincoln attending a social function at the White House although he may have done so with a group of congressmen. Obviously, he was never present at a cabinet meeting, nor did he participate in high-level governmental decisions. However, it is important to note that Lincoln's time in Washington was spent during the term of the strongest president between the time of Andrew Jackson and the Civil War, the presidency of James Knox Polk. From a distance, Lincoln could see Pope bogged down with administrative detail at the expense of personal contact with the people. He could see congressmen snipe at the president for purely partisan reasons, a tactic which Lincoln indulged in himself. It is impossible to measure the impact of Pope's handling of the presidency upon Congressman Lincoln. Perhaps there was none. Perhaps Lincoln, never dreaming of the presidency for himself, did not observe how Pope worked, and thereby he failed to appreciate the staggering proportions of Pope's responsibility. Lincoln openly criticized Pope's explanation of war causation, and on the floor of the House of Representatives, he asked aloud how the war could be justified as a defense against armed aggression. Did Lincoln remember when he was chief executive how he spoke as a congressman? Did his own experience make him wary of congressmen who speak on broad national issues when, in reality, they cannot think beyond their own bailiwick? While the Civil War raged, did Lincoln, in a moment of meditation, ever recall that while Pope was troubled with the destiny of a continent, Lincoln was seeking the attention of a few voters in Sagamon County. The Free Soil Party in 1848 split the Democrats wide open, and the Whig candidate, Zachary Taylor, was elected president. Lincoln had been an early and ardent supporter of Taylor. In doing so, he dropped support of his early uh, hero in politics, Henry Clay. Upon Lincoln's retirement from Congress on the day of Taylor's inauguration, Lincoln believed he was entitled to consideration from the new administration. He hoped to be the chief spokesman for Whig patronage in Illinois. Soon it became evident that Taylor and his advisors afforded Lincoln scant attention in appointed matters. Nonetheless, this was as near as Lincoln ever came to having influence in a national administration until his own president except when he was fresh out of Congress and seeking favors from the new Whig regime of Taylor. Lincoln was always in opposition to the party controlling the executive branch of government. 
There is no evidence that Lincoln ever spoke with Taylor or with any other president until a few days before his own inauguration when he paid a purely social call on outgoing President James Buchanan. He did visit with former President Fillmore on his trip to Washington for the inauguration. But until he met with Buchanan a few days before his own inauguration, there is no evidence that Lincoln had ever spoken to an incumbent president. You see, Lincoln's remoteness from any president before his own presidents is still unique in American history. Conversely, Lincoln was never under the direct command of any president. This cannot be said of the 14 individuals who occupied that office from 1797 to 1861. George Washington, of course, being the first president, naturally served as chief executive and therefore had no president under whom he could serve. But every one of the others, from Adams to Buchanan, at one point or another in their career, was under the direct command of a president who was knowledgeable of their existence. So Lincoln failed in his only attempt to obtain an administrative post at a national level. The circumstances causing Lincoln to push his own candidacy for commissioner of the General Land Office in 1849 began when it became evident that none of the men he favored would be chosen. Lincoln desperately wanted to become commissioner. Examination of the correspondence in the Lincoln letters between May and June of 1849 will reveal letter upon letter written by Lincoln in an effort to secure this appointment for himself. The commissionership would have enabled Lincoln to remain in Washington and to be part of the federal government. Even more than this, it would have saved him from the oblivion which he feared awaited him once he returned to Springfield. Most galling of all was to learn that the position had gone to an Illinois rival who had expressed doubts about the capacity of Taylor to be a good president while Lincoln all along had been advocating the election of Taylor. By the end of the summer 1849, Lincoln had returned to his law practice in deep disappointment. Later in the year, the Secretary of the Interior did offer Lincoln the governorship of the Oregon Territory. Lincoln refused. He did so, no doubt, because he believed the future of the Whig Party in Oregon was not too prosperous, and also because his wife had no desire to move to a largely unsettled area. I'm sure she regarded Springfield as bad enough. Probably equally important, importantly in this decision of Lincoln to decline the nomination was the realization that acceptance would take him more than ever away from the center of political activity. During the 1850s, Lincoln desired to return to Washington as a senator. More than anything, he wanted to prove his worth in an arena where he had stumbled, the national legislature. For five years, Lincoln devoted himself to law until the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Bill aroused him to active participation in politics once more. For more than 100 years, Abraham Lincoln has been the subject of intensive study by historians as well as popularizers of history. 
There have been magisterial volumes on his life and on his presidency, of which we're all familiar. And there have been trite, moralistic publications, of which the worst may very well be, Lincoln never smoked a cigarette. Uh, he never smoked a cigarette, but probably because cigarettes were not manufactured on a mass basis until 1873. But there is a book called Lincoln Never Smoked a Cigarette. There have been studies of Lincoln the Emancipator, Lincoln the Warlord, Lincoln the Politician, Lincoln the Statesman, and so forth. But there has never been a study on Lincoln the Administrator, and that's what I've been working on the last few years. I was fortunate enough to have this regarded as original research and to be awarded a doctorate degree for writing the dissertation on the Lincoln administration. But the real purpose of my presentation tonight is to raise some questions and perhaps to give some tentative answers based on my own research into the problem of Lincoln and the federal bureaucracy. The first major objective of the Lincoln administration, and one that is frequently overlooked, was not to save the Union but to attain the power on which every successful presidency depends. Lincoln knew that salvation of the Union depended upon his acquiring and exercising that power. Not until it was undisputable that the Lincoln government truly represented those who wanted to keep the Union intact would he be able to deal with those who desired to secede. In other words, Lincoln had to become a national leader with evident power if he was to unite the divided nation short of war, and that was one of his goals. As an administrator, he had to feel out the alternatives of policy and decide which were consistent with the retention and increase of popular support. It was as a designer of public policy and not as an executor of standing legislation that Lincoln attempted to solidify behind him the support of the moderates, both in the North and the South, those who did not desire war. Not until after the shots were fired on Fort Sumter did Lincoln begin to utilize the war powers of the presidency and impose upon the nation the demands which hostilities brought. Once Lincoln did invoke the commander-in-chief clause of the Constitution, and he did so directly after the fall of Fort Sumter, there was still no guarantee that he would get anything done. Although Lincoln assumed the supreme command of the military, he still had to function as a political administrator. As obvious as it is, the distinction between Lincoln the military commander and Lincoln the civil administrator must be emphasized. There was little doubt that Lincoln could lawfully make the ultimate decisions in military affairs. The Constitution is explicit on who is the commander-in-chief of the armed services, even though no one knew early in 1861 how far that authority extended under the guidance of a forceful president. What observations can be drawn from a study of Lincoln's administration and Lincoln's personal characteristics as an administrator. Using four broad categories, planning, organization, command, and control, what then can we say of the Lincoln administration? 
First, there was no master plan for the Lincoln administration. As a candidate in 1860, Lincoln kept his silence and made no effort to pretend that he could solve all of the nation's ills if he were elected. He carried no political or administrative theory into office other than his own determination not to let the United States divide by default. Remaining a Whig in many ways, such as his views on paper currency and nationalism, Lincoln appealed to no American system or young America doctrine as a panacea for his country. Neither did he send to Congress any set of bills which reflected doctrinaire answers to the crisis of the hour. To this extent, the administration lacked cohesive unity. Lincoln can be criticized for not attempting to establish a method for determining how the administration as a whole would move. Indeed, he frequently devised policies of his own without consulting his advisors on how they could best be executed. To improve public administration, Lincoln could have created some kind of clearinghouse, which would have attempted to view the prosecution of the war as a national effort. Such a group might have included both civilian and military officials who actively sought the assistance of business and industry to implement victory. This would have been a way for Lincoln to create a liaison with congressional and banking circles, which might have avoided some of the extravagance during his first 12 months of office. The concept of total war was absent from governmental deliberations, and as a consequence, no one knew the true capacity of the Union to mobilize its resources against the enemy. Lincoln did not maintain an orderly or organized schedule as president. He relied on the cabinet for opinions in the Sumter crisis, but once the war began, he became less and less anxious to consult with the cabinet as a whole. There is reason to believe that Lincoln did not entirely trust his cabinet to keep confidential matters from the public. For this reason, he may have been reluctant to share his thoughts with his closest official advisors. But as a result, the cabinet was never an organization in the sense that it regularly reported to Lincoln or assisted him in making his decisions. Lincoln, Lincoln frequently inquired into departmental affairs, but he did refrain from directing policy and administration in areas where he was not personally enthusiastic. Keeping an eye on the Treasury, for example, was different from approving each financial move, move made by Secretaries Chase, Pheasanton, or McCullough. Inevitably, the War Department became his primary concern, and it was there where he exerted his greatest influence. Secretary of State William Seward was virtually free to manage questions of foreign policy and even with potentially ex explosive situations, such as the Trent Affair, Lincoln preferred to remain in the background while exerting his strength. Lincoln had no staff system, nor did he ever attempt to establish one, a system which could have funneled information to him from the numerous areas where he held responsibility. His three secretaries were burdened with work, 
and did their best to bring to Lincoln's attention the most urgent business of the day. But they were unable to keep abreast of the departmental happenings. As a result, Lincoln lacked adequate information about the government. It is true that the establishment of committees or staffs by chief executives had not been developed prior to 1861. Lincoln, however, quickly gauged the revolutionary nature of the war, and he did not allow precedent to impede innovation. Such a committee was not beyond his authority or his imagination, but its creation was never brought about. In the realm of command, Lincoln expended most of his efforts toward directing the army. He had the power to appoint the military chieftains, to issue executive orders, and could rely on the Secretary of War to implement his commands. Most of the difficulty Lincoln had with Congress came from the conflict of interest regarding the war effort. Congressional laws, appropriations, and investigations were more liable to impede Lincoln's authority as a military commander than as a public administrator. For example, during the war it was Congress which changed the system of military organization employed by the nation. In 1862, it was Congress who compelled Lincoln to divide the army into corps and thereby reduce the number of men under McClellan's command. The command which Lincoln exercised over the entire administration varied from department to de department. More people were employed by the Interior Department than any other Bureau of the government. But the time Lincoln spent on problems of the interior was negligible. The authority of the Treasury Department was virtually exercised by Secretary Salmon P. Chase through patronage for more than three years before his final break with Lincoln in 1864. Whereas President James K. Polk had all the lines of the bureaucracy emanating from the presidency during the Mexican War, Lincoln was quite willing to relinquish his involvement in one area in order to concentrate on another. First, he sacrificed interest in the non-military departments to concentrate on the armed services. Then he devoted more attention to the army than to the Navy. And even within the army, he asserted more authority in certain areas than in others. As the chief administrator of the federal government, Lincoln was both good and bad. He can be blamed for not effectively planning or coordinating a general program for his subordinates to strive toward, and he can be praised for his unswerving devotion to the overriding political issue of the day, the integrity of the Union. It is true that Lincoln did give up command in some portions of the executive branch but he never let anyone control his administration. What then can we say of Lincoln as an individual administrator? By asking a number of questions, his function as an administrator can be evaluated. First, did Lincoln seek really first-rate men to govern his administration? A general answer to this question must be a decided no. Lincoln's original cabinet was a conglomeration of frustrated presidents-to-be, geographical compromises, and factional balances. 
William Seward and Samuel Chase, given the top positions, both believed their party had made a mistake in nominating everyone's second choice, Abraham Lincoln. Simon Cameron and Caleb Smith from Pennsylvania and Indiana, respectively, were rewarded for their part in Lincoln's nomination, while Gideon Wells, Montgomery Blair, and Edward Bates were representatives of the Northern Democrats and the border state Whigs. Lincoln tried unsuccessfully to bring a moderate Southerner into his official family. None of his cabinet was chosen for administrative experience or familiarity with the executive branch. It is true that both Seward and Chase had been governors and therefore had training as executives, but that was not the reason that Lincoln gave them the State Department and the Treasury Department, respectively. Did Lincoln give his cabinet officers the authority necessary for the tasks which he asked them to perform? Well, in general, it can be stated that Lincoln allowed his subordinates a wide range of authority as long as they remained within their domain. He did keep a close watch on the army, and he never let Cameron or Stanton go too far without consulting him. It can be added, however, that Lincoln did not hesitate to let others take the blame for his mistakes or his inaction. Seward was criticized for withholding diplomatic correspondence from the Senate, while all the time it was Lincoln who did not want the, the information released. Likewise, uh, Attorney General Edward Bates was blamed for the failure to enforce the Second Confiscation Act, even though it was Lincoln who had no desire to, uh, to apply it. In all probability, Lincoln was more anxious to protect the institution of the presidency than to protect himself. Knowing that Congress had run roughshod over vacillating presidents such as Pierce and Buchanan, and perhaps anticipating what Congress would do after the military emergency ended, Lincoln had no desire to have a direct confrontation with the men on Capitol Hill. It is widely assumed that Lincoln did not call Congress into session for two and a half months after Fort Sumter because he wanted to gather power unto himself. Certainly Congress could easily have been assembled in 10 days after the fall of Fort Sumter. As you know, it was not called into session for 80 days, meeting on July 4th. Well, it can be argued that perhaps Lincoln feared Congress, and he had a dread of facing Congress as president. Could it be that he hoped for the best, but secretly worried that Congress might perceive that he lacked true presidential ability? Was Lincoln responsive to public demand for policy change? Usually, although not always, expressed through the polls at local and state elections. As president, Lincoln sought vindication from the voters for his policies, but he was not overly influenced by setbacks at the polling booth. The midterm elections of 1862 were not encouraging to the Lincoln government, but they did not deter the president from the prosecution of the war or from issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. On matters of national policy which did not directly affect the military aspect of the war, Lincoln accepted the will of Congress. 
With much important legislation, Lincoln's only role was to sign it into law. Rather than being responsive to public demand, Lincoln was more apt to remove, maneuver alongside it and anticipate the mood of popular feeling. One of his outstanding attributes was his ability to discern the temper of the times and to act accordingly. Was Lincoln flexible in his administrative ability? Certainly Lincoln had a flexible policy on matters such as emancipation and reconstruction. Likewise, he was flexible in the amount of authority he would exert within the various departments. Still, Lincoln reserved the right to step into any bureaucratic controversy. He maintained a flexibility in his dealings with Congress and frequently followed congressional dictates except when they conflicted with presidential power. Only in the field of military command and reconstruction did Lincoln become rigid in his determination to hold on to his positions of strength. How consistent was Lincoln in his approach to the problems of the presidents? An argument can be presented, for instance, that Lincoln lacked consistency in his approach to the Negro problem. First, he declared he would not interfere with slavery where it existed. Then he said his intention was to free some slaves and let others alone, after which he once again called for compensated emancipation, while shortly thereafter issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, and finally, supporting the 13th Amendment to the Constitution with vigor. This appears as an inconsistency, but it can also be termed responsiveness. Consistency is an ambiguous word, and Lincoln cannot be judged by it in its broadest sense. Neither can Lincoln be termed pragmatic in the true philosophical meaning of the word. He was practical to the extent that he did not commit himself to unalterable policies, and he did not make apologies for his apparent inconsistency. Lincoln changed as the aims of the war changed. He remained consistent in his determination to see the war through to victory, but he never attempted to coordinate the presidency with all of the executive departments. Was Lincoln a stable leader or was he flappable? Well, Lincoln steadily acquired stability for himself and his government, which was rewarded with re-election in 1864. At the time of his death, Lincoln was at the height of his powers. The war was virtually over, and Congress was not to convene until December 1865. Due to his flexibility, Lincoln had developed no long-term policies based on public demand. The concept which he had for Reconstruction was personal and evolved from the belief held by Lincoln that the war powers of the presidency could be extended into the time of peace. What then can be said of Lincoln's leadership? Real leadership is more than a response to public demand. No president can run that office merely by looking at the opinion polls. It requires the taking of the initiative in, in, in areas of public policy. 
Lincoln did not hesitate to take the initiative in the early days of his presidency, even, even going so far as to disregard the Constitution, and he remained this way until the end. He initiated military campaigns, established reconstructed governments, gave a measured freedom to the slaves, and defied Congress on the question of reunion. Still, his leadership was never so far in advance of public opinion that it emerged as though he were an arrogant leader demanding that the people follow him. Lincoln grew in stature during the war, but so did Seward and Chase and Stanton. All of them were more influential at the end of the war than they had been when it began. In other words, the leadership of Lincoln, great as it was, was accompanied by the growth of his official advisors, who equally sacrificed themselves for the Union cause. Lincoln was not necessarily a giant operating in a, an area surrounded by pigmies. Was he then an effective administrator? Lincoln has escaped widespread criticism as an administrator because his efforts to win the war were successful. The fact is that he was successful in spite of a loose administrative system. Had the North agreed to a compromised peace, or had Lincoln failed to be reelected, he would have been roundly condemned for his lack of administrative ability. Likewise, his constant search for adequate generals would have appeared to be pathetic if his cause had failed. As it is, Lincoln died a martyr's death in the hour of victory, and his faults have been relegated to oblivion. The first year of the war was badly managed. The shortage of arms, clothing, and other vital supplies rocked the War Department to its foundations. Once the army was assembled and Washington had been secured, the forces were used for no offensive purposes in 1861 except for the abortive campaign at Bull Run. Financial problems plagued the Lincoln administration in 1861, for it failed to prepare the economy for a long struggle. Revenue in 1861 fell far below expenditures, while the inexperienced chase groped for a solution which could reverse the trend. The issuance of paper money was resorted to in an effort to provide enough funds for the war. A most important permanent change in American society emanating directly from the Lincoln administration came in the field of financial policy. This was an area where Lincoln himself exerted small influence compared to his impact on the military and reconstruction. As the tempest progressed, Lincoln was able to direct the fortunes of the nation with a more statesmanlike ability. But there was never clockwork efficiency in the government. Duplication of effort continued until the end. Although there was less wasted manpower and material and money in 1865 than there had been in 1861. Lincoln never fully utilized his cabinet officers or their written reports. He violated the chain of authority by constantly undercutting subordinates, thereby rendering his cabinet officers less useful than they might have been. 
Of course, an early example of this is his use of uh, Gustavus Vasa Fox in the uh, Fort Sumter uh, mission, uh, which uh, neither Seward nor the Secretary of the Navy Wells knew anything about. The machinery of government moved, and it functioned. But Lincoln cannot be classed as an efficient administrator. But when the immense burden assumed by Lincoln in March 1861 is fully considered, the wonder is that he succeeded at all. He was without executive experience and remained an indistinct figure to most Americans until well after his inauguration. After more than a century, Lincoln remains a mystery in many ways. He was aloof from his contemporaries, and yet he was generally concerned about others. He appeared to be the calmest person in moments of tension, while men like Seward, Stanton, and Chase worried constantly over the course of events. The Lincoln story will probably never change to any great degree from what it is today. There are no hidden letters or neglected diaries which will ever disclose a different man from that which scholars have discovered since his death in 1865. But he left no system of governing because he didn't have any. There is no Lincolnian system of government as there was a Jeffersonian system. Jefferson's concern for an agrarian Arcadia and Andrew Jackson's belief that all should be able to participate in entrepreneurial pursuits have given their names to an age, the age of Jefferson, the age of Jackson. There is no age of Lincoln. He was not typical of his time, and yet he was perhaps the most capable political leader in American history. Of all the men considered great as president, he served the shortest length of time in the White House and imposed the least pressure on Congress. And still, he was able to elevate the presidency to unparalleled supremacy in national affairs. So I thank you very much for your courtesy, and I would be very happy to entertain any questions or comments or anything that I may say. And certainly, he's not alone in this respect among presidents. Uh, Pardon me, did you have another? I have a second question that you, uh, you were talking just came to mind. What do we know about the other presidents preceding in their ability to pick men as administrators? Wasn't this the case all the way up? Yes. Uh, Polk, for instance, named Buchanan to be Secretary of State, and Buchanan was virtually a clerk. Polk was his own Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, there were some very strong men, though, in the cabinet positions. Calhoun was an excellent Secretary of War for Monroe. Crawford was very capable as Secretary of the Treasury under uh, both uh, Madison and Monroe. Uh, my point is that Lincoln, in a time of crisis, turned to political war horses rather than to people who were uh, expert. Now, I don't necessarily criticize him for this, but I do say it was an option that he had, and yet he did not take it. If I were President of the United States, I would look for the very best possible man to be Attorney General. I think Mr. Ford did that, for instance, when he appointed Mr. Levy to be Attorney General. There was a man who was apolitical. 
That is what an attorney general should be. It should not be your brother. It should not be uh, uh, the man who led your campaign for the presidency or your best friend from Georgia. But there are different presidents uh, who take a different attitude on who should be appointed to executive positions. Uh, Ralph? <laughs> the track record of a previous president is less well known for me much. No president ever came to office more superbly qualified to fill the office on paper. James Buchanan, no president, perhaps, of the first 15 presidents served so miserably. On the other hand, that the president with virtually no political experience, whose career was cut short because of a lack of refrigeration, killed Zachary Taylor, the fish that was mailed from Boston to Washington in the summertime. Taylor had real ability. He didn't have a long enough period to demonstrate it. He, he knew the war was coming, and uh, he knew that the longer he waited, the worse it would be. He was perfectly willing to have that, have it out, right then and there. We forget, Lincoln faced the problem that only Washington faced. Yeah, he was hitting a new party. Washington was doing it for the first time. Lincoln didn't have any core, though he had Stanton with served later at Stanton would serve in the Buchanan in the Democratic administration. But Lincoln had to pick men from a new party to serve. It was a completely new deal. He was able to handle these men. Sure, he wanted them to keep his eye on Seward and more so on Chase. And Seward was useful. But this new party, with a war definitely in the offing, had to keep whatever part of the country they did control in their command. And he had to have every leader with him, because if he wasn't with him, he was against him. He was they, sure they were all potential presidents. They had demonstrated that in Chicago in 1860. And unless he did it, and, and he, he had to be pragmatic to that extent to see how they would work out. He had, if you read the correspondence, if you see the greatest serial story in the whole Lincoln, Lincoln uh, literature, you realize uh, how much minutiae he knew about the operations of certain phases of some of his departments. So he kept his hands on the as he did, did in the case of uh, the Attorney General, and ultimately replaced him with a moderate Southerner in James Speed. But what happens to a man like Lincoln, and some of the times you can't quite explain it, is a mystery, but it, 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 you hate to resort to it, but it, it's that sublime mystery of genius, which always seems to accomplish things in some undefinable way, and it goes along with the definition of greatness in, in, in the president. Uh, to be a great president, you have to be a consummate politician. He was. He was not a great politician. On the national scene, he only had two years of it, but he knew the art of politics. He knew it superbly. He knew how to use his power. He didn't hesitate to do it. And were he president today, he was probably indicted and investigated by every committee Congress could possibly devise and every uh, column could be climbing down this hill. 
He was willing to use the awesome power at his command because the Constitution gives the president the power to do things really illegally because it doesn't stop you from doing it. It can theoretically call you to task after you've done it. Now, the great virtue of what Lincoln did compared to Mr. Nixon is that when Lincoln did something that was not constitutional or questionable, he in the main did it out in the open. He said, I am doing this, I am doing it because I think it's right, and I'm willing to be judged by it. He gets us committed, and we are committed, and he's involved in it, in a civil war in April of 
uh, in the 1850s is far inferior to what it is in the 1860s when the North is able to use the railroads and even the uh, communication of the telegraph. And of course, if the war had come, all things being equal, in 1850, the North would have been led by Miller Fillmore. <laughs> now, you know, one thing that's uh, something that the, the Southern people overlooked uh, in 1860-61, the Southerners in their wildest imagination believed that the North could produce a political leader of the stature of Lincoln. And they had good reason. Who in American history had ever been a great political leader from the North? There was Daniel Webster, but he never became president. But look at everyone else in American history from 1789 to 1860. Every one of them was a Southern. Washington, Adams, Jeff, I mean Washington, uh, Jefferson, uh, John Marshall, Jackson, all of them, you see, were Southern. There was Alexander Hamilton, but he never became president. With the exception of, of Hamilton and, and Webster, who never became president, there really wasn't a first-class leader in the true sense of the word. And if you could resurrect a Southerner today who died in April 1861 and tell him that Lincoln is not only regarded as the greatest president in American history, but many people would regard him as the greatest American in our history, they would be absolutely appalled. Because in many ways, he was an unknown quantity and unknown quality. But yet in his own heart, I believe that Abraham Lincoln knew all along that he was Abraham Lincoln. He also was a Southerner. Yes, and he never forgot this. And Lincoln never forgot that the Southerners are Americans and have contributed so greatly to our heritage. And I, I agree with what you say about his mysticism. And, uh, and he looked upon the Union as a mystic entity, and he did have this touch of the common people. He also had a way of playing with these people. Um, you know, the adroit way, the Euchre chase, out of the contest for the presidency and safely in the Supreme Court. But earlier, when Seward and Chase are unhappy and he receives both their resignations, and he gets Seward, he knows Seward's going to change his mind, and he has Seward willing to serve, and he leaks Seward's reply saying he will serve to Chase, putting Chase in a hell of a spot. He has to go back, go back long enough for Lincoln to put him in the cabinet, and they get him out of the Supreme Court. He knew how to handle men. FDR could do it. FDR would do it by measuring every possible, every man that came to him. He would make you feel he was measuring you for the seat he was occupying, even though he knew damn well he was never going to vacate it. But he made you think, you're going to be the heir apparent. You're going to be the heir apparent. And they all walked out thinking so. He was promising that everybody in the world didn't mean it at all. He was manipulating them. To show how uh, shrewd Lincoln was in regard to Chase when he made him, appointed him Chief Justice in December of 1864, he did that for a number of reasons, not just to be nice to Chase. But, yes. But you see, Lincoln was smart enough to know that after the war, some of the legislation of the Civil War period would come before the Supreme Court. What better way to prejudice the Supreme Court than to have the Chief Justice being an instigator and uh, an approver of this policy? Also, it was a good way to get Chase out of politics, and also a very good way to make the Chase people appreciate Lincoln, because after all, he had brought their man back from oblivion. Chase is a very interesting character, and we need a very great need, I think, of a good biography of Chase. I 
understand um, oh, all that did the Greenback book uh, is working on that. I forget his name right now. He's doing a biography of Chase during the war. But there is a, a need for that study on Chase. But the Chase correspondence is very interesting and also uh, the impact of his daughter on his own career and on Washington society, especially on Mrs. Lincoln. And her husband. Yes. Unfortunately. Mark? Yes. Did, uh, did Lincoln ever consider appointing some important Southerners to the cabinet? Well, he tried to get Gilmore of North Carolina to come into his original cabinet, but he wouldn't do it. Uh, Gilmore wouldn't. Uh, that's as far as I know the only true Southerner that he really approached. Now, as close as he got was to get someone to come in was Bates who was an old-time Whig from the slave state of Missouri, and also <coughs> Montgomery Blair, who, uh, who was not the epitome of Southerner, uh, a Southerner, but he did come from the slave state of Maryland. But he would like to have brought in someone of stature, uh, such as Herschel Johnson, <coughs> uh, the vice presidency of Douglas, who was known as a state rights unionist, whatever that is. That sounds like a juxtaposition of terms. But uh, they weren't interested. They didn't. You, you know, sometimes people say the Southerners didn't trust Lincoln. But another fear that many Southerners had was not that he would be a patsy or a weak president, but that he would be a very strong president. And there was the fear that he might use the patronage to divide the people of the South, uh, especially in regard to the post office. Because ever since 1835, when Amos Kendall was postmaster general, the postmasters of the South had not delivered any abolitionist literature. Because the abolitionists, abolitionists were sending out all these things, you know, to occupy and hoping that they would get down to the Southern. I wish you could get a postman to do that today. Yeah. But they were burning everything that came in, you see. And the, the, the president of Washington and the postmaster general did not enforce the delivery of incendiary mail. As a matter of fact, President Jackson once said the post office is not to be used to foment agitation. Uh, there was the fear in the South that Lincoln might start appointing postmasters that then deliver this stuff and it would cause commotion. And there also was the fear that he might appoint moderate people to be federal marshals or federal judges or federal revenue collectors, that he would not antagonize the middle class of the South, and these people would see that their true interests rest with the working class of the North rather than with the planter aristocracy of the South. And the aristocracy, the planter class that really dominated the South politically, were just as afraid that Lincoln might be a good, effective president as they were that he would be a stumble bump and a Franklin Pierce or a James Buchanan for the Republican Party, namely someone controlled by personages other than himself. Uh, Ralph mentioned about Lincoln doing things out in the open. Other than his relationship with Congress, maybe a silly question, but did Lincoln have press conferences, presidential press conferences as we know them today? How did, how did his you know, press relations work? The, the first president to have press conferences in the modern sense of the word is Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, who, who, well, he, he just thrived on publicity. He would call press in and get his name in the headlines. Woodrow Wilson was the first to have press conferences every week, and he cut that out after a while. Lincoln learned more from the people asking him questions than they learned from him. 
He did not have press conferences to the extent that there were a group of reporters asking him questions, but he would allow correspondents to come in, uh, go bright, I can think of, of the Associated Press, Noah Brooks, who incidentally was to become his secretary because uh, uh, Nicolay was going to be consul in Paris, and, and others. He would bring them in, but he would ask them questions, too. What do, what do the people in California think? How were things in New York City? He would learn more from the reporters than they learned from him. But not in the modern sense of the word, uh, nor did he. Uh, the first president to actually have a press secretary was, was Theodore Roosevelt. But the, the beginning of the public inquiry into the public, uh, private lives of presidents really begins with Grover Cleveland. When Grover Cleveland is married in his first term, he uh, was a bachelor when he was elected. And the reporters follow he and his wife to the honeymoon college and college to try to peek in the window and all this. And that's when you begin, begin getting this surprise of the president. I'd like you to talk about perhaps what you might call Lincoln's soul brother, but also a person who might have been dangerous to the federal government, even though his efforts were, in fact, crowned with success. One Governor Morton of Indiana, who set up the closest thing to a complete and absolute dictatorship, within a state in the United States as has ever happened during the war? Well, there were three very strong governors in the early days of the war. John Andrew of Massachusetts, uh, Richard Yates here in Illinois, and also uh, Oliver P. Morton. Uh, this was done partly because the Secretary of War in the early days, uh, Simon Cameron, was inefficient and downright corrupt. He was using uh, his powers of patronage to reward old political cronies and so forth. Uh, Morton did not get away with this beyond 1863. There were uh, two things that, uh, rather three things that really cut down on his power. One was when Congress gave the president the right to control the rails and the telegraph. Another was uh, the uh, income tax and, and the collection of revenue by direct federal agents. And the third was the draft, where federal authorities came into Indiana and took the young men directly into the army rather than having them filtered through the uh, Illinois uh, militia or what we would call the National Guard. Uh, Morton is an interesting man, and if Lincoln had lived uh, into the Reconstruction era, that would have been one individual that he would have had to have dealt with. He might very well have appointed Morton to his cabinet or bought him off in some other way, uh, because as you say, he was a powerful man. Uh, much neglected and indeed in oblivion now. But uh, I hadn't thought of him setting up a dictatorship, but perhaps he did. I, mean, I, I hadn't thought of that particularly. But uh, let me say this. Lincoln got along with Morton better than he did with Horatio Seymour in New York, who of course was a Democrat. And Lincoln could be thankful that there were so many Republican governors during the uh, I, uh, the reason why he comes to mind is that he was, in fact, in danger of being very much a, almost a states' rights advocate in the North of what the state of Indiana would and would not do, what troops from the state of Indiana would and would not do, and also a general under his tutelage with the happy name of Jefferson Davis managing to shoot his subordinate, murder him in the middle of a hotel in front of many, many witnesses, and never even getting a reprimand. <laughs> Much I know of an incident, the marshal and I were speaking a little while ago, but uh, I really don't know the intricacies of that. But he's not the first man shot and tried for that. 
I was doing a little research on my own. In 1890, there was a member of the House of Representatives who was murdered uh, in, uh, or rather, he murdered a newspaper correspondent in the Capitol building. And I was thinking of doing a little article on that in regard to the uh, Wayne Hayes scandal. You know, things can be worse. Uh, <laughs> well, see, what happened was this congressman from Kentucky was running around with his secretary, who was a woman, running around with her, and it was reported. So he uh, shot the uh, reporter and killed him. As far as I know, he was the only person to die of wounds in the Capitol building. Okay. It was in 1890. So maybe things haven't changed that much. But we need <coughs> studies on, on people like Morton uh, at the state level in the North. There really isn't, in my opinion, now Mr. Newman would know this more than me and some of the other good people here, there really isn't a good study on the North during the Civil War as opposed to the Northern War effort. But I mean, what was going on in Michigan? What was going on in New York? What was going on in, in Illinois? There have been regional studies, even state studies, but the overall picture. There really hasn't been a good book on that. There wasn't done in 1905 uh, by Whedon on federal and state government administration, something like that. It's, it's way out of date. Well, in uh, past readings, I found that, uh, you know, that you had said that Lincoln had tried to devote a lot of his time to the military aspect. Well, why was he criticized by many of the military commanders for like sticking his hands in too much or becoming too involved or like that when he had no experience? Well, there were two answers to that. One, as Mr. Newman touched upon, Lincoln did not want to wage a Republican war. He was trying to get everybody into the effort. And because of that, he had to appoint some political generals, people who knew nothing about the military, but they did represent the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. I'm sure you can think of someone in that case. Uh, or two. Uh, the other, uh, the other answer is that the professional military people didn't like him meddling because he was not a professional military man. On the other hand, look what you have in Richmond with mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis, who is trained at West Point, and he won't listen to anybody. <laughs> he knows it all. He doesn't want to listen to Joseph Johnson, so he uh, he gets into trouble. But Lincoln was willing to learn, and Lincoln. Uh, was willing to read. And if you look, you go to the Library of Congress, they have a record of their books yeah. and checked out a number of military books. Um, I, I, I think in, in regard to the Lincoln-McClellan relationship, it was not all 100% McClellan's fault. I think uh, Lincoln perhaps didn't understand the military mind, and he didn't understand what McClellan was trying to do. McClellan was trying to organize an army and then use it. And Lincoln, of course, realized something or found out something that General Marshall, uh, in, in his writing, said he realized in 1942 that in politics something has to be done every year. What Marshall wanted to do in 42-43 was to build up a big base in England and then hit fortress Europe. But Roosevelt said, no, we have to invade Africa, we have to invade Sicily, we have to invade Italy, we have to do something, otherwise the people won't stand still. And there was that argument. McClellan, if he were here, would argue that the same tactics that Grant used in 1864-65 is what he planned to do in 62, but they didn't give him time to build up the army. They didn't give him the men. When all the reading I've done it, it seemed like McClellan just wanted to organize a perfect standing army and not do anything with well, it. Well, he didn't want to get their boots muddy or their tunics uh, spotted in yeah. mud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And in a way, 
uh, he he was destroyed by politicians on Capitol Hill. They came to despise the felony. For one reason, he was a Democrat. And secondly, he didn't want to interfere with the institution of slavery. And there was the fear, you see, it can be argued, there was a fear he might end the war before slavery is touched. And then what would happen? The southern states would come back, and the northern Democrats, the southern Democrats would get together, and that's the end of the Republican Party. Well, I know that Lincoln didn't have that much experience. He um, didn't have any. Black Hawk War. Well, Black Hawk War, but... You know, how much they didn't he had two weeks of marching around, yeah. and that was about it. But, but he was willing to learn, and this yeah. is part of his greatness. And uh, there is, of course, the book, 1926 book by Ballard called The Military Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Many people have argued along that line that he was intuitively a military genius. Well, you said what he read, he read a lot. He did, in the White House. Yes, he did. Yeah, before. Yeah. There was no one in this country, and there had been no one since Washington, Chief of Ordnance. And you, well, the first question here tonight, the Gatling gun, he was very much against the use of the Gatling gun. He looked upon it as an unfair weapon. And also the breech-loading rifle was available in 1863. He didn't want to use it. You know why? Ripley said, if the men can fire that rapidly, they'll waste their ammunition. Well, it would seem to me that he was more concerned about wasting money yeah. by having the men shoot which makes them very unique among yeah. bureaucrats. I'd just like to ask, uh, was one of the reasons I, that Lincoln surrounded himself politically with these people, not only kind of to draw, instead of individual parties and states, to draw it into kind of the North, but to avoid criticism uh, or interference from other areas? Because if he had all these, you know, fairly strong people in the executive branch, 
he would be kind of a little, it would be a little harder to attack that part of the Well, government. yes, every faction was represented. Well, you have Seward as, you know, yeah. a moderate Republican. Chase is as close as he comes to putting an abolitionist in the cabinet. Uh, Gideon Wells is an old Jacksonian Democrat. Uh, Bates is an old border state Whig. Uh, that, that's uh, what he's doing, bringing in different factions. But, uh, Pierce, as I said, tried to do the same thing in 1853, bringing in people like Marcy and Jefferson Davis. And, but he wasn't strong enough to bring it off. He was devouring the cabinet. But I want to say one thing before, we, I mean, I, I'll stay here all night. I mean, I'll the talk the Civil War. But I do, in a way, represent the um, Minneapolis Civil War Roundtable. And I would be very interested uh, if any of you here would like to come to Minneapolis and give a talk. But not this year, because we have our program set as you do. But please give me your name, and I will turn it over to our secretary. We have a meeting on December 20th, and perhaps you could come to Minneapolis next year.
this evening. Well, thank you. I, this is very flattering. I, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, this is, of course, the, the granddaddy of all Civil War roundtables. I know that the most distinguished people in Civil War historiography have spoken here, and I am singularly honored to be here for that reason, to be included among that group, and of course doubly honored to have met uh, many of you and to have spoken to you, and especially to have met Mike, and, and I like Thank you very much.